This is a one and all media podcast. And even though travel was much more difficult, living conditions much more harsh, the church and the missionaries of those days truly believed they could reach the entire world with the gospel. And they were willing to give their lives to do it. But they really thought they could take Jesus to all people groups. In fact, they packed their stuff, not in luggage, but in coffins. Because they knew, most of them, that they would not return. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Fines. I'm glad you're joining me. My name's Aaron. Today, we're going to hear a powerful message from Pastor Jeff looking at how love conquers fear. This message reminds us just how powerful the love is that we find in the gospel, the good news that should drive us to love others above all else. Be thinking about who God has placed on your heart to love as we listen to Pastor Jeff right here on Today with Jeff Fines. Here's the task that I've been given is to remind every one of us of what we have in the gospel and how wonderful that it truly is. And then to to inspire you to take a good look at your own life and ask the question, what is it that you're ultimately living for? If I were to ask you right now, why are you even here? Why did you come? Are you here because there's a pursuit of God in your life or are you here as some kind of appeasement that maybe if you're here, you'll get God on your side and good things will happen to you this week? There's such a contrast in that, such a difference. What is it that ultimately motivates you? And I hope to inspire you to remember how wonderful the gospel is and then to motivate you and to challenge you of the task that God has given you, not to hold this treasure so close to your own, but to be willing, if you've truly been moved and changed by it, to take it to the entire world. You know, Greg and Amanita have this great ministry in Northern India. And my wife, Robin, and I traveled up to a place called Darjeeling. So we went through the tea plantations, winding through the mountains, took about three hours to get there. And Ajay Lal told me about this church that existed up in Darjeeling. We went into the little place that they meet, a little community hall. They greeted us with flowers and with a a photo of Darjeeling, the the city, the beautiful city that sits on the mountain there. And you can see Mount Everest over across the way. Beautiful town, beautiful people. And the elders of our church back in Los Angeles, where I pastor, gave me the command to treat these men and women who give their lives for the gospel to treat them well. So we took them to to dinner and we met a pastor by the name of Silas. His story was remarkable. Now remember, this is a hostile area where Greg and Abenita work. And there are pastors there giving their lives for the gospel. This man Silas worked for the government of India for over 20 years. And his job was basically this, find all the Christians you can and beat them with iron rods 
extract them and then extricate them out of the area. Move them on to someplace else because they're not welcome here. For, for 20 years, he would act like he was their friends, discover them, and then abuse. Kind of like a modern day apostle Paul, what he did while he was Saul, before he was converted to Christianity or to Jesus Christ. I sat and I listened to Silas' story. And this was the way he lived his life. And then one day he started having a dream. And he kept having a dream of a little baby being born. At first, it was just a weird dream, but then it happened night after night after night after night. He said, Pastor Jeff, it was driving me to insanity. Finally, I had to get out of the city. I went back into the rural areas to where my mother lives, and I told her this dream I'd been having. When I told her about the dream, she looked at me, and she said, this little baby that you're dreaming about is Emmanuel, God come in the flesh. He is the Christ child, Jesus Christ. His mother had been converted by a Christian missionary, incidentally from America. When Silas heard this, he too became a Christ follower. He stayed in the government, only his job changed dramatically. You talk about using your job and occupation for the glory of God. Silas started trying to find the Christ followers and helping the young pastors get the papers that they needed for approval, to go across the border into Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Bhutan, and Bangladesh. I asked him one day, I said, man, aren't you worried that you're gonna get caught? He said, it's inevitable. I said, aren't you afraid for your life? He said, well, and I quote, my love for my people is greater than my fear of man. And I said, but these aren't your people. They're different tribes, different countries. He said, all people are born of the same spirit. When he told me that, I, I thought, you know, I don't live my life like that. I wish I could tell you that I did, that I was as brave and courageous, but that wouldn't be the truth. I find that in my life, fear overwhelms my love more often than it should. I remember Anastas Sabamunga, who was my translator in Rwanda when Cam and I went into the prisons. We developed a relationship. Over time, Anastas believed that he could speak truth into my life, so he started speaking truth into my life. And on about the sixth or seventh year that I returned to Rwanda, he said, I want to take you to a very special prison. These are not just the people who committed murders with a the machete. These are the, the, these are the generals. These are the political figures who orchestrated the genocide. It's a smaller prison, but you have to do everything I tell you. We'll go in, you'll preach, I translate, and then you stay between me and the wall. We'll go out of the gate and we'll leave. Right before we walked in and they opened the iron gates, I looked at Anastas and I said, Anastas, you've been talking to me a lot about this trip and all our other trips have been relatively safe. Are you saying that I'm in danger? And Anastas looked at me without pause and he said, Pastor Jeff, does it matter? And I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> I got a wife and two kids. It's almost like Anastas was saying, you, you American pastors are kind of all the same. You love the romanticism of going overseas, but as soon as it's going to cost you something, you start thinking, well, maybe I don't want to do this. Fear often overwhelms love. In fact, sometimes I've looked back over my life of how many times and how many places we've been. And in all honesty, I'm not sure that I've done what I've done because I love and care about people. I think oftentimes I've done it to merit something with God. That maybe if I go and do this, that God will give me favor. Maybe I'll have a great year or great month because I've done this huge favor for God. Please listen to my heart. Many of you do know me and I feel that I can speak frankly with you. In no way do I mean to judge you. I just 
hope to catalyze something in you that will perhaps bring change. Today, I remember reading 1600. In the 1600s, the total population of planet Earth was somewhere around 545 million souls. Think about that. And even though travel was much more difficult, living conditions much more harsh, the church and the missionaries of those days truly believed they could reach the entire world with the gospel. And they were willing to give their lives to do it. But they really thought they could take Jesus to all people groups. In fact, they packed their stuff, not in luggage, but in coffins. Because they knew, most of them, that they would not return. That they would give their lives for the good news of the gospel. Their love for people was greater than their fear of the unknown. A few years ago, in preparation for preaching a message at the North American Christian Convention, I sat down with Dr. Ajay Law, and I said, how can we pray for these pastors that are going into Orissid, very hostile territory? Many of them would be beaten, torched, dipped in hydrochloric acid, raped and tortured, yet they weren't deterred. They still wanted to go and preach the gospel. So Ajay, how can we pray for these pastors? Here's what he said. Don't pray that the persecution will end. Pray that we will be brave and courageous enough to endure it. This is how the kingdom grows. This is how the church grows, through persecution. When our love overcomes our fear. This is not anything new. The first Christians in chapter five of the book of Acts they had also been beaten, burned alive, crucified. Their response, verse 42, they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So they looked to God and they said, God, thank you that you counted us worthy. Worthy is the Greek word axios, which means weight. Thank you that you trusted us to bear the weight of this persecution and never leave our post. So they were happy that they were persecuted. They rejoiced that they could live their lives for a purpose greater than themselves. So right up from the time of Christ to the 1600s, the church has always believed that it could reach the entire world and it was worth giving their lives for. Now think about today. The population of planet Earth is somewhere around 7.5 billion souls. There's been a significant increase in population, yes, but also a significant advancement in technology and liberty. We have a greater sense of freedom to go and to travel and a greater means by which to do it. Travel, technology, and time, perhaps for the first time, is on our side. And if you look at the way the world has gone, it's almost like God has continued to increase man's knowledge and reach so that through technology or whatever we have accessible to our hands, it means that no person on planet Earth is too far away from the potential of hearing and receiving the gospel. And yet, here we are in 2017, and there are more people classified as unreached right now than in human history, at least since the time of Christ. David Platt gives a harrowing example. He says, take Northern Yemen, for example. There are 8 million people. That's twice the population of the state of Kentucky. How many believers do you think exist in Yemen? He says 20 to 30. Not 20 to 30,000, 20 to 30 out of 8 million. Folks, 2 billion people today are classified as unreached. That's more than unsaved. It means they don't have access to a messenger, a preacher, or the message itself, the good news found in the gospel. Can you say that with me just to make sure you're awake? So let's wake up just for a moment and make sure you're awake. Say that with me just to kind of let it sit for a moment. Two billion people have no access to the gospel. On the count of three, one, two, three. Two billion people have no access to the gospel. And sometimes I think the church were kind of like 
American Idol? You know those guys who go and try out, they can't sing, but nobody told them? I mean, his mother told him, I can sing or you can sing. So he goes on, but he has no real friends because his real friends would say, dude, you can't sing. You're gonna embarrass yourself. They're gonna make a YouTube video of the 10 worst tryouts in American Idol and you're gonna be number one. I feel sometimes that as the church, we do so many good things, but nobody will speak truth into our lives and tell us, look, we have greater means, a greater resource and greater liberty. And yet there are 2 billion people who have no access to the gospel. And if I look at my own life, I have to ask myself why? Knowing this, what's wrong with me that I am not moved very much by that? Why, why are we not down on our knees right now crying because two million people have never heard the name of Jesus? And I've come to a conclusion. It's either one of two things in my life. Number one, I don't really love people that much. I like them. I wish them well, but I'm really not concerned about the disintegration of their souls. Or two, maybe I do love them, but I'm too afraid. I'm afraid of the cost. It's just too great. I'm too busy. I have other things to do. On one trip to the Congo with Anastas, we were awakened one morning at 5 p.m. by hundreds of Christians out on the grass praying. Five o'clock in the morning. These are pastors who live hand to mouth. They got nothing. And yet they're up in the morning praising and giving gratitude to God. And I looked at Anastas and I said, Anastas, I, 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 why am I not like that? And he looked at me and said, don't worry, Pastor Jeff. You can't help it. You're an American. And later on, he explained to me that Americans, typically, we are distracted by affluence. We got too many other things to do, too many other pursuits to worry about two billion people who've never heard the gospel. But the Bible says in 1 John 4 that we're supposed to be people of love because he first loved us. That if we claim to love God and yet we don't love our brother or sister, we're a liar. Whoever doesn't love the brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. What he's saying is your love for God and your love for people are inextricably tied together. If you love God, you'll love people. If you think you love God, but you really don't, you'll have no passion for people. So I got to look in my life. And I began to understand that if we have no passion to reach the two billion unchurched, unreached, it's probably because we've never truly understood the gospel. Or maybe we kind of have a working knowledge of it but in reality, we've never had a Jesus revelation. We don't truly know who he is because the core of the gospel says that we love others because he first loved us. I had a lady in Australia once uh, in a talkback radio show that I participated in call me and say, you know, Pastor Jeff, uh, what do you mean when you say God is love? And in Jewish tradition, I answered her question with a question. And I said, well, what do you think I mean? by God is love. And she says, well, I think God's love is like a hug or a squeeze of a little kitten. And I had to respond with my favorite verse in the Bible with a little paraphrase out of Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the cat shall be no more. <laughs> now, the Bible doesn't actually say that, especially that last part. But as you can tell, I don't like cats. But love of God is more than some kind of subjective, ooey-gooey feeling. The love of God described in the Bible always includes sacrifice, whether it's agape, unconditional love, story gay, love between a parent and a child, eros, a romantic kind of love, or phileo, a friendship kind of love, all include sacrifice to some degree. And if you forget what God has done for you and somehow you become numb to it, you will not have passion for the things of God because you cannot get close to somebody 
without being impacted by who they are and what makes their heart beat a little faster. So my first job here, just quickly, is to remind you of something. And we have a tendency to go away from the gospel back into religion from time to time if we forget this. But I've used this so many times, whether it's on an airplane. Actually, I used it on Friday night down at the Midnight Sun Lounge at the Western Hotel. There was a lady who looked at me and said, what do you have as a pastor to offer me? And so I took her through this. Usually, I'll ask somebody, how do you know you're good with God? How do you know you're going to heaven? Knowing what they think, I'll draw this graph. 100% means I'm 100% good. Zero means I have no good in me at all. And then I'll ask the person, would you do me a favor? And this is not original with me, but would you place your name on this chart where you think you fit? Never once in 25 years of doing this has anybody ever placed their name below the 50% line. Now, why do you think that is? Because in every one of us, we think as long as we have more good than bad, we're good to go. God loves us. We're going to heaven. So everyone will place their name somewhere here and then I'll go on another step. I'll say, well, you know, it's interesting. Billy Graham was asked this question and he put his name around 33%. Now they're getting a little nervous. <laughs> and I'll say, do you want to change where you placed your name? Where do you think they placed their name? I mean, it's so close to Billy Graham. It's touching the line. It's touching the line. Because I can't go too far down. And then I say, that's interesting because Mother Teresa, by the way, this is true, asked this question and she put hers around 23%. Now they're getting nervous. Would you like to change where you placed your name? They don't know what to do. But you know what they do? They place it so close to Mother Teresa's name, it almost looks like it's right over the line. And the problem is that in the world religious system, wherever you go, you earn favor with God by being good. Only the gospel tells you that you don't get to heaven and you don't have intimacy with God on the basis of how good you are, but on the basis of how good Christ is and that he paid the ultimate penalty for your sin and mine. There is no other way. But if you think you're pretty good, your love for God will not be that great. Jesus himself told a story and then he said, here's the application. The more forgiveness, the greater your love is gonna be. If you feel like you don't need that much forgiveness, your love for God's not gonna be that intense. But if you feel like, man, without God, I'm hopeless and I have no eternity, then the more you recognize that and your eyes are open, the more you're gonna love and honor God. That's why, folks, when I... Uh, was a, a teaching pastor here. I tried to start a prayer meeting on Wednesday night before our Bible study. I never was able to get more than 15 people out of a church this size to come and pray. Now, let me say something. That probably had more to do with me than you. But when I got to Los Angeles, I wanted to try it again. And God gave me this great idea. He said, if you're gonna start a prayer meeting, you're gonna have to start it with desperate people. People who know they have issues and their only hope is God. So I took our Celebrate Recovery Ministry and I had them start the prayer meetings. Not that they're the only ones who have issues, they're just the only ones willing to admit it. And they came and now we pack it out. We come together and it's a full house of people praying because we've realized how desperate we are. That corresponds with your love of God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But there's a beauty in that exclusivity. Because what Jesus is saying is if you ever want to see God 
other than a cosmic taskmaster. You want to see him as a loving heavenly father. You got to get the level, the intensity of grace really required to save you. That he gave up his own son so that he would not lose you. That he turned his back on his own son so that he would not lose you. And if you don't ever understand that, you're never going to have a love for people who've never heard the gospel. In Christ, the message is very different, isn't it? The Bible tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We can go into the Holy of Holies, but you can only go in there because of what Christ did. We're told that the wall of separation between us and God has been torn down. And I can't help it, but it always reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Delmar's just come out of the water and he looks over to Everett and Pete and he says, come on in boys, the water is fine. Jesus looks at us and he says, come on in, it's safe. The gospel is the only way you can truly know how God feels about you. Now here's why this is important. Let's take that little thought and set it over here and concentrate on this for a moment. Most of us, when we think about people in other cultures, we think, well, they're religious. You know, they have their own way. They're sincere. And because we've been sucked into a secular culture, suddenly we started to think that maybe there are other ways that man can be saved other than the cross. Let me just say something quickly. I hope you realize that if you believe that, then you're making God out to be a masochist. Because if there's another way for us to come to God, why does he need to do that to his own son? And think about how brilliant it is in the mind of God. If God wants to communicate to us in a way we would understand the depth of his love, what is the deepest, most penetrating love of the human experience? The love a parent has for a child. So what does God do? He gives up what is most precious to him so that he does not have to give up you. And so in other cultures, it's about appeasing God. It's about rituals and ceremony. It's a, this world, folks, is a place of fear. I've been to Africa and to Thailand and to Australia, New Zealand, to the South Pacific Islands. It is a place, it is a world of fear. You take India, which is primarily a Hindu culture. Fire walking is still practice. To prove a person's piety and to appease the gods, even though there's serious injury, sometimes death. The practice of hooking is still popular, where the backs of a participant is pierced by sharp, sharp hooks and then lifted up off the ground by the tearing of the skin, again, to offer sacrifice and appease the gods, all 330 million of them. Baby tossing still happens today in India. Every year in December, babies are tossed 200, from 200, 200 feet in the air above the temple. Temple priests will actually release them into a crowd to be caught to appease the gods, to remove barrenness, and to somehow inspire the gods to give more babies. Even female infanticide. To pay the penalty for sex outside marriage that leads to pregnancy. They will take the baby and the baby will be either killed or set afloat on a river to drown. People live in fear. When you see people washing in the Ganges, you know, it's, it's, not, it's much more than some kind of baptism ceremony it's, it's a fearful oppression that if I don't do this and do it often, the gods will punish me. These religions of our world, they're not just rituals. They are the effect of abject fear. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. The problem is that in the world religious system, wherever you go, you earn favor with God. 
by being good. Only the gospel tells you that you don't get to heaven and you don't have intimacy with God on the basis of how good you are, but on the basis of how good Christ is and that he paid the ultimate penalty for your sin and mine. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.